Father God, we come to you through the merits of Christ who provides a way for us as sinners to come before your throne and receive grace in the time of need. And God, we are in a time of need this morning as a congregation. We come to you relating to Jonah as running sinners. Father, you have made it clear so often what your will is in your word and what your will is for us as Christians. Yet many times, like Jonah, we justify bad decisions. So, Father, I pray that you would conform us, reform us this morning according to your will into the image of Christ who was the greater Jonah, who always obeyed, who always followed your will. Let us rest in him and be transformed by his perfect work. I pray that this morning for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, open with me to Jonah chapter 1 this morning and hear God's word as I read verses 7 through 17 this morning. So we have a context for the text we're going to look at this morning. Here Jonah has came to the point of rebelling against God in the first part of this chapter. He's talked to the sailors and said, basically, here's why I don't want to go. And they determined to deal with Jonah in a gracious way, in a merciful way through this text. And yet God has a better plan for Jonah that required a sacrifice, which would point us to the ultimate sacrifice we find in Christ. But just understand what's going on here. God is using Jonah to be a witness to unbelieving pagans, whether he wants to or not. And yet he doesn't receive the blessing that he could have received had he done it willingly. Yet God in his mercy still works through this prophet. I'm just praising him that he does that this morning because he works like that in our lives as well. Many times he works in spite of us. Even when we're going downward, he works in a way that brings him glory through our rebellion because of his restoration. Verse 7, it says, And they, the sailors, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this disaster, this evil, has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, and the pagans here show more mercy than Jonah. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord Yahweh, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we're going to focus this morning mainly on verse 17 in a few moments. But what we see here throughout this story is God pursuing a rebellious sinner. We see God working in miraculous ways to sustain him to accomplish a greater glory for his own name, for God's own name, through Jonah. Jonah receives no credit, no glory in this book, and that's rightfully so. 
He doesn't seem to be conformed to the image of Christ. Doesn't seem to be obedient. Doesn't seem to be willing. Even toward the end of the book, we still, still see he is still like a rebellious man at the end. Yet God is working through this rebellious man to point to a greater prophet to come. The one who would always be obedient. The one who would always go where God sends him. And he would even go into the depths for us. Not just to save his own reputation or to save him from having to go do something difficult. That's what Jonah was doing when he says, throw me into the sea. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Let my life end and let the gospel end with me and let Nineveh perish. Not Jesus. The greater Jonah. He comes into the world to go into the depths for us. So that the world through him might be saved. And as I read through this text, I I got to thinking about what Jonah was saying, what Jonah was wanting all through the first part of this up to verse 16 or verse 15. He wanted to be away from the presence of the Lord. Well, he finally gets what he wants. And then he changes his tune. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said something and immediately regretted what you had said? I think Jonah felt that way in verse 15. I think he wanted to run from God and He didn't want to be used by God, so he wanted to be completely away from God's presence. So he said, I'd rather just die. Throw me in this this sea, this tempestuous sea, which God would turn out to be a sea that would bring him to repentance. It would wash over him. It would plunge him deep so that he would cry out to God for mercy, the very thing that he was called to give to Nineveh. Jonah becomes a living illustration to the Ninevites of what God does for sinners. He shows mercy in great abundance, time and time again. I think in verse 15, when they threw him into the drink, he was kind of regretting what he had said. He's like, these guys took me seriously. They actually believed the prophet, and they threw him in. And God, in his grace, he actually caused the storm to cease for the sailors, but not for Jonah. Jonah's heart and his actions cried out that he was going to be in rebellion against God and run from God's will no matter what. But what happened was, time and time again, as you see through the story, Jonah keeps running into God's hand and God's will time and time again. God is always ahead of Jonah, preparing a way. God's sovereign hand finally stops him in verse 17. That's what we're going to look at this morning. In verse 17, Jonah thinks he can do what he wants. Jonah is preparing to do what he wants all throughout the story. And then God's hand says, stop. And actually in the Hebrew text, verse 17 comes as a pause. We are called on by God to stop at verse 17 and think for a moment. Can you outrun God? Why do we run from God? We run from God because we think we have a greater agenda than God many times. We run from God because God's will sometimes is difficult for us. When we try to run from God, though, we should learn from Jonah. God's hand will stop us if we are believers. And you might be thinking this morning, well, I I don't want to run from God. I never run from God's will. I always want to run to God's will. Well, if you think that, you might actually be more like Jonah than you realize. I think Jonah was justifying his actions. I'm doing God's will. God really doesn't want those pagan people to believe and receive the blessings of Israel. If he really wanted that, then he could send somebody else to go there, not me, the prophet to Israel. So he was trying to justify his actions. He didn't think he was intentionally rebelling against God. He thought that what he was doing would ultimately work out for good for Israel. We all run from God's will in different ways and at different times in our life. And if you don't think you do, I'm going to give you a test this morning to see if you run from God's revealed will. You're going to have to go with me in your scriptures to a few passages to to examine yourself this morning before we get into the text that we're going to look at. But I want you to examine yourself to see if you always run into God's will or if God sometimes is running ahead of you to stop you like right now and say, wait a minute, you need to realize you are running from my will. In Scripture, we are commanded to obey the revealed will of God. Turn with me to Matthew 28. 28, 
Matthew 28, 19, I think we all probably know by heart. Jesus gives the Great Commission here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, you and I are commanded to run into God's will. And God's will here in Matthew is that we are to be witnesses continually for Christ until he comes. How are we doing on that? How are you doing on the test so far with test question one? Are you being a continual witness for Christ? Are you making disciples? Are you discipling someone right now in your life? Are you witnessing continually to those you meet around you, to your family, your friends? I think we could all probably put a check there that we missed that, including myself, especially myself, I think, when it comes outside of... or. It, not outside in the, in the world, but inside in my family. I need to pursue this more. Sometimes we run from God's will in other ways that are very clearly laid out in Scripture. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 7, tells us that we are commanded, according to God's revealed will, to be sanctified internally and externally. In our actions and in our thoughts, everything that we do are to be set apart unto God to bring Him glory, reflect the image of Christ, holiness, purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Are you pursuing holiness in this area? Are you watching what you take in through your eye gate on TV, on the internet, when you're walking through Walmart? Are you being sanctified internally and externally? Examine yourself. Are you following God's will here? How many times you take a glance or you look and you ponder something way too long and you have fallen from sanctification here? doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. I'm just simply pointing out that we are not always maybe as obedient as we think we are. Evaluate yourself. See, see, when you fail at witnessing, when you fail at sanctification, ultimately you have to look to the one who never failed, Right? You look to Jesus, the perfect witness, the one who is completely sanctified. He is your hope. He is your redemption. We're also told in Ephesians 5, 18, that we are to be spirit-filled daily. And this, this is a simple way of saying you are to be controlled. Filled always means in Scripture, always means to be controlled by. So are you controlled by the Spirit of God? Well, how do you know how to be controlled by the Spirit of God, what that means? Well, you are filled with the Spirit's words. You are controlled by the Spirit's words. Where do you find the words of the Spirit? In the Scriptures. So we are told here to be Spirit-filled daily. So think about, how is your Bible study time? 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled or controlled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Are you filled with God's Word daily? Are you consuming God's Word? Is it transforming your life? Because it will lead to sanctification, which will lead to witnessing. See, we, we, we think that we're not running from God's will. Because we think that running from God's will would mean, you know, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not robbing anybody. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing any of those really bad things. But we're redefining the things that God has said that should be a part of our life, just as Jonah was. Jonah was a prophet. Called to be a witness. Called to go where God sent him. Yet he redefined how God should work in his life. And so do we when we ignore the revealed will of God here that are simply laid out in front of us. We're also told in 1 Peter, you don't have to look this one up, you can look it up later, 1 Peter 2, 13-15, that we are to be submissive 
willfully to all the governing authorities in our life. Think about that. Are you willing to be submissive to those that God places over you? Husbands, over the wives, husbands under Christ, are you submitted to Him? And wives, are you submitted to your husbands? Are we submitted to the government that's over us willfully? Or do we complain continually? That would not be God's will. You'd be running from what God's called you to do. One of the things that we see in Timothy is that when we follow and pray what God has called us to do and pray, and we pray for those who are in authority over us, God will allow us to have an entrance to be a witness to those around us. He'll give us a peace. He'll give us a peace in the midst of when people are in chaos, wound up about politics and missing the point about the gospel. Politics will not save this world. Jesus will. Jesus will change your politics. But be submitted to Jesus and don't be consumed with the world. To be thankful, not complaining. That's the other revealed will of God that we see in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Are you doing that? Are you giving thanks to God in every circumstance and difficulty? Or are we complaining? Anybody ever complain? Don't raise your hand. We fail these tests. Yet these are revealed very clearly in Scripture. And so when we come to Jonah, I think we can all sympathize with this prophet. And again, not look down on him, but look eye to eye at him. We all run at times in differing ways like Jonah. So I think Jonah 117, go back with me there. It's supposed to be a divine stopping point for us today. It was certainly a divine stopping point for Jonah. He was halted here. So I think we need to stop and wonder why. We need to observe this. If you look on your outline, it speaks about God rescuing running sinners like Jonah and us in verse 17. How does God do that? God rescues running sinners, number one, by appointing a shelter to prepare us for ministry. That's what he did in Jonah's life. He prepared a divine shelter that would protect him, that would keep him in the midst of the flood that was around him. And also, God rescues running sinners by pointing to a Savior to preserve us for eternity. He appoints a place to be covered, a place to be protected, a place to be sheltered so that we can be prepared to do the ministry He's called us into. Then He points through that shelter to a Savior who will preserve us in our ministry and our life for eternity. We're going to look at the first point here. God rescues sinners by appointing a shelter to prepare us for ministry. Jonah 1.17a And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, the most obvious truth that we see in this text is God is in control, right? Jonah himself testified that he is the God of the sea and of the land. So it shouldn't surprise us that God is also the God of the sea creatures. Now, this would have been an important illustration, not only to the Ninevites, but also to the Israelites in Jesus' day. When Jesus uses Jonah later on to talk about his own ministry and what he would do, the sign of Jonah, he points out that it was God who put Jonah in this fish, which the Jews would have understood as a Leviathan. And they would have understood Leviathan as being the great fish that God controls in Scripture. And so they would have seen in that picture that God is going to put Jesus in the tomb, as Jesus said. It is God who places him there. It is God who brings him out, just as he did in Jonah's experience. And it would be a testimony and a rebuke to the religious, prideful Pharisees who were confronting Jesus in Matthew 12. But let's think about this situation for a moment with Jonah. Think about what's going on. Jonah's in this ship, in a sea that scaring sailors, they're terrified because of these, the storm and the waves. And so he tells them, throw me overboard. And so they, 
They, they hesitate for a moment. They try to save him, but they can't. So they finally say, okay, you're God's prophet. We're going to do what you said. And so they grab him. They pick him up. They plunge him into the sea. In all likelihood, Jonah wasn't a good swimmer. This would be a frightening, terrorizing experience. Sometimes we read this story, and though I want the kids to really grasp this this morning, it's not a children's story. It's a story about judgment and righteousness and salvation and mercy and miracles. But it's frightening here at this point. When you are out of God's will, you should be frightened. I think that's something we can learn here. He thinks he wants to do this, but then when he's actually facing the consequences of his sin, he becomes terrorized. The reason I say that is what we'll get into next week. Chapter 2 makes it clear that this man is frightened. This man is terrorized by what's going on. And here's why I think he's terrorized. You think about this from his perspective. It says that God appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah, but the passage does not tell us how quickly the fish swallowed Jonah up, does it? Anybody here ever go noodling? I've done it. I'm not going to do it again. I have no desire to stick my hand in a dark, murky area and be bit by a fish that's as big as my head. Just imagine the terror that Jonah faced. He goes into the sea. He can't swim. He is gasping for air, and he is sinking quickly. He is going down to the bottom. And I, I, I know just this much about the sea. When you get very deep, you don't see anything. The storm is tossing and turning above, so I don't imagine he saw anything from the time he hit the water. He is plunging down into the darkness and then eventually into the fish. Look at 2, 5, and 6. We see that here in chapter 2, 5, and 6. This is speaking about him being in the water. He's not in the fish at this point. Sometimes we read chapter 2 and we think, well, he's in the fish from verse 1 all the way down. No, he's not. He is praying as he is sinking deeply into the sea. He doesn't know the rescue is coming, by the way. He has no idea. This is all after that we have this text in front of us. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. That means he's at the bottom. He's at the bottom. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Now, I'm not real sure, but I'm thinking the way you sink to the bottom is not just because of your body weight, but because of the fluid that you're taking into your body as well. He's drowning. He's sinking. He didn't know the rescue was coming. He probably didn't even know for a long time that he was in a fish. He may have not even known he was in an actual fish until it spewed him out on the bank. In chapter 3, he just knew something happened and that God was in control of it. We can imagine what it would have been like. And when I think about what was going on, though he didn't know this, this was an extreme rescue initiated by God's grace. It's a rescue in many ways because what it does, it rescues him from continuing in sin. See, the great miracle is not the fish what goes on inside the fish there's a change in jonah's heart there's a change in his actions because it is god who sends the fish to stop him suddenly And, and what i think you need to understand is when we're in rebellion against god's will sometimes god i'm not saying he's going to use a great fish out here at a lake sometime when you're fishing this week but sometimes god will use a great fish experience to stop you in your tracks And open your eyes that you are not walking in his will. And you need his mercy. That's what he does with Jonah. Jonah has to come to the realization that the God of mercy that he refuses to go proclaim about is the God that he needs in the midst of this darkness. So it's amazing to me, in the midst of the darkness, God opens his eyes. Isn't it that way in your life? It doesn't have to always be that way, though. He's revealed to us His will that we can walk in it obediently without having to go through this kind of experience. And He'll open our eyes to see the pleasures of that. See, Jonah could have went to Nineveh. Jonah could have went to all these places under God's blessing, not under God's discipline. Jonah didn't receive the joy that he should have received from this ministry. 
And neither will we if we do our ministry grudgingly. Yet God will work to get His will done ultimately through us because we are the instruments that He has chosen to declare the goodness of Jesus. In verse 17, I want to give you and I want to give the kids here this morning a glimpse into what may have been going on as Jonah is sinking. I want you to think about this because I think this is important. I think that we, we, we need to see what he was going through to understand the extreme nature of this rescue. Just imagine sinking into the darkness. You're drowning. You're desperate for air. You're frightened. You're passing out most likely. And then as you awaken, you awaken in this pitch black groaning tomb full of gaseous smells the stench of death, decaying sea animals all around you. Most likely, it's around 104 to 108 degrees inside of this fish's belly. The air is putrid. You're covered in stomach acids. For Jonah, he described that situation as hell or the grave. The abode of the dead. It would make sense, wouldn't it? He knew he was running from God. He's thrown into the pitch black darkness. He thinks he's dying and he wakes up and he smells death. And it's all around him. And he hears sounds he's never heard before. It takes him a while to realize he's in some sort of creature that's alive. It's actually called a great dag. D-A-G. Great fish. We don't really know what kind of fish it was. We just know that God appointed it. God appointed it to prepare Jonah for something greater. It prepared Jonah to be a minister of mercy. It brought Jonah to repentance and put him back on the path of obedience. The type of fish is really not essential here to the story. But the miracle of the fish is important. There have been accounts of these kinds of situations and men have survived being swallowed by a fish. And we can be assured that those are always amazing instances, but this instance is different. Because this instance is different in the sense that God had appointed this fish for a divine purpose. And the amount of time that Jonah spent in this fish was also a miracle in itself. Because the stories that I found about men being swallowed tend to to illustrate that they were swallowed by an animal and then found a few hours later, maybe a day at the most. But three days and three nights has not been heard of in history other than this account. But this is possible, certainly possible. In, in 1891, a whaling ship was launched out with a crew to bring down a sperm whale. The boat got capsized, and one of the men disappeared. Other, another man died, and one man disappeared. The whale that they were hunting was eventually killed, and the next day, as they cut it up, they brought the stomach out, they removed it, And inside of the stomach was the missing sailor. He was unconscious but alive, according to the Princeton Theological Journal of 1927. And here's something interesting about sperm whales. They're massive. I mean, have you seen those on TV, on TV of some sort, right? Um, The sperm whale, it has an enormous mouth and throat and stomach. The mouth is around 20 feet deep, 15 feet high, 9 feet wide. And they usually feed on animals like squid that are actually larger than humans. So it's very possible that a sperm whale could have been sent to grab up Jonah and consume him, if you will, down his gullet into a a room that would be the size of your probably average bedroom. It's possible. But it doesn't have to be a whale at all. There's also another animal, an animal called a whale shark. They also call it a sea dog which they kind of stole the name from Dag, a sea dog. They have been known to swallow men whole in the past. So there's a lot of possibilities as far as physically how this happened. But supernaturally how it happened, there is no other explanation except God sent this fish and appointed it for a divine purpose and sustained Jonah while he was in it. That fish became a shelter from sin, from wrath, It protected him from God's storm of wrath that was going on around him. And it prepared him for repentance so he would be useful for God in his ministry. 
The type of fish really doesn't matter. What matters is the rescue. The rescue was a miracle of mercy. Jonah didn't deserve this rescue. I mean, Jonah is being pounded in the head by God saying, don't you get what I'm calling you to do? I'm showing you mercy time and time again, and you don't deserve this. I'm calling you to go to Nineveh and declare that kind of message. This mercy finally opened Jonah's spiritual eyes, I believe. I think that's what matters here. In verse 17, all we see is the fish stopped Jonah from running. It's really what we see in the first part of that verse. It prepared and preserved Jonah for his great commission, right? His great mission. Now, I was thinking about that and thinking, okay, God used something to stop Jonah and prepare him for a great mission. He used something that would provide shelter for Jonah, correction, preparation. What has God chosen and appointed to be our shelter today? Well, number one would be His Holy Spirit who lives in us, dwells in us, convicts us, sanctifies us, calls us to God's Word. But He's also prepared for us the body of Christ, the church. The church is God's appointed means of rescue for fallen sinners. We're here to come alongside one another to equip one another, to encourage one another, to edify one another when we go through struggles, when we do run from God's will. We are to run after those people who are out of God's will with compassion and with mercy. And then we are to confront and we are to correct and we are to equip them for ministry. Look what Ephesians 4 says. Ephesians 4.11, 4.11 through 16. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're called to be joined together as a place that will shelter one another, equip one another, encourage one another when we go through difficulties, when we are struggling with obedience. One of the things that we're called to do is to be faithful to speak the truth in love to one another. It's the Word of God that changes us. It's the Word of God that was coming to Jonah, that was finally going to turn his heart. If you think about it, in Jonah chapter 2, what does that look like? Look at that passage in Jonah chapter 2. It looks like a passage out of the Psalms, doesn't it? That's because that's what it is. In the midst of his distress and his fear and his anxiety, Jonah is filled with God's word because Jonah had filled his heart with God's word. So Jonah speak, or God speaks to Jonah rather, and he equips him and he prepares him for repentance. He speaks truth to him in love to equip him for ministry. That's what we're preparing ourselves to do here as a church. When we see running sinners in our church, we are to run after them. We are to be a place that they can stop and they can find rest and they can also find edification and correction. We are to prepare them for the ministry. That's what it says here in Ephesians. We are to help equip one another for the ministry. The ministry, by the way, is for you to do in the world. The pastor teachers come alongside you, equip you so that you can go into the world and do ministry. That's what God's word is given to do for the church. And that's why it is a shelter for us. And the body of Christ is preserved by this eternally. Now, look with me back in Jonah 17b. Here we see how God rescues sinners by, number two, pointing us to a Savior who will prepare us, or preserve us, rather, eternally. In 17b, it says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, 
When I read that and when you read that, you should ask yourself, well, why? Why three days? Why three nights? I mean, couldn't have just said three days? That would have been sufficient? No, it wasn't sufficient. Because this miracle was to point to a greater miracle, which is exhibited by Jesus. Three days and three nights are here mainly to point us to Jesus, who would be our eternal preserver. God is preserving him here through the power of Jesus, three days and three nights, to illustrate that Jesus was preserved three days and three nights in the tomb and came forth victorious without the stench of death on his clothes. Jonah's message and deliverance was typifying Christ's message and his resurrection. The reason, the reason I think, though, that it's listed this way here in this text, why it's brought out, it's important to Jonah's ministry to Nineveh that he was in this well or fish three days and three nights. His time in the belly of the fish testified to those people he witnessed to that his message was true. I serve a God who rebukes sinners, calls us to repentance, and then preserves us if we turn from our sins. And he will equip us and give us life as a result. So he stays in this fish long enough to appear to be dead. There is no hope for this man to live on his own in this fish. That's part of his witness to Nineveh. It couldn't have been a trick. He stayed in this fish long enough to have the stench of death on him. They would have thought he came from the dead, back from the grave. See, the the Ninevites, they worshipped a pantheon of gods. And one of the gods they worshipped was the god named Dagon. And what did I call the fish earlier? A dag. They worshipped the fish god. The one who controls the watery grave. The one who could take the life of sailors. And what Jonah's deliverance proclaimed to them was, there is one greater than Dagon who has brought me up from the grave and from the power of Dagon. See, what I think is interesting here, Jonah would have came out of that fish. If you think about this, he's in there three days, three nights. He's being bleached by those acids in the stomach of that fish. No sunlight. He comes out looking like a ghost. He comes out looking like he's been with the dead and smelling like he's been with the dead. This is part of his witness to Nineveh. He was a walking gospel track, a door opener. He walked into that city. He says, repent, because the God of mercy who brought me out of that fish is coming to judge you if you do not. But he brought me out alive from the dead, from the grave. This time period was essential for his ministry, for his testimony. It's also essential for Jesus' testimony. You see, Jesus being in the grave three days and three nights also testified that he was certainly dead. There was no life in him. But the interesting thing is, when Jesus came out of that grave, there was no stench of death. And he did not look like a dead man. He had a life that was going to be imputed to those who believed in him time period is important. It validated Jonah's message. It validated Jesus's message. God alone can bring men back from the dead. He brought Jesus from the dead to testify that Jesus's life was a perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus didn't come out looking like a sinner. He came out looking like who he was, a savior. He was complete and whole, and he came back in a way that people saw that there was a great God who delivers from death. In a powerful way. Jesus himself compares himself to Jonah in Matthew 12. Go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 38. Now, I'm going to read 38 to 41. And I want you to notice who the audience is here. This audience thinks that they don't need a Savior. A Savior only belongs to those who are unrighteous. And they were, in their own eyes, righteous. They were self-righteous and proud of it. Notice who they are. Verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jonah was entombed in the belly of that fish and was brought forth by God's mercy and God's power. And he himself, Jesus, would be entombed in the heart of the earth and brought forth also by God's mercy, by God's power for the redemption of sinners like them. The religious proud people here didn't want to hear this. They thought that only the Gentiles needed this kind of message, yet they would not give it to them either. They didn't want to hear that they were sinners like Gentile pagans. Yet Jesus chooses Jonah, who went to the Gentiles, to rebuke them, saying, You're a lot like them, yet they repented, and you will not. Jesus reminds them that Jonah was called to be a preacher of repentance to sinners. He reminds them that Jesus himself came preaching the message of repentance to them. So it's always interesting to me as I look in Scripture and see time and time again Jesus shows the Pharisees that one is greater standing before them calling the supposed religious elite to repentance, yet they would not come because of their pride and their arrogance. And then he says, fine, look at these prophets who they went to. They went to those who weren't noble, those who weren't grand, and yet they repented. And they turned and found salvation, and they were preserved for eternity. Luke four, sixteen, And he came to Nazareth, where they had brought him. And he was, in, as his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, he's saying, I'm coming to people who are needy. And the problem that the religious people had in his day was they didn't think that they fit into these categories. He's saying, that's fine. You don't think that this is where you fit? Actually, you do. I'm going to show you this. But since you don't want to see it, I'm going to point out that I have sent my prophets to Gentiles who you think don't deserve it. And they heard it and they received it. Look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus uses Elijah, the prophet to Israel, to point out that though there were many widows in Israel... God didn't send the prophet to the Israelites. He sent them to the ones who were in need, not the ones who were trusting in their own abilities. He sent them to, the, to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. She's a Gentile woman. And there were many lepers, it says in verse 27, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrians. Here again is God sending his prophet to a Gentile to cleanse him. He's showing them, you guys will not be preserved by your self-righteousness. You will not be sheltered from my wrath. You will receive it. Instead of finding shelter and preservation, you will find destruction. If you do not repent and believe in this message that Jonah forecast. Jonah and Jesus teach us that God preserves all who trust in God's provision and God's mercy who see their need of a Savior and turn to Him. But men like you see in Jesus' day and even Jonah himself, unless they're confronted in their sin, they will not repent. Yet God in His mercy comes after us, bringing the message of repentance so we can turn and find hope and find out that we can be preserved and rescued by Christ's work. Look at Galatians. Galatians 2. 
It's through the work of Jesus, not our works, not our religious abilities, not our self-righteousness, not our law-keeping, our rule-keeping, that we are preserved for eternity. We are preserved by being placed in Jesus. We are preserved by the Lord Himself. That preservation came at an extreme cost to Him. This was a more extreme rescue than Jonah experienced. We have received the experience of rescue at the price of Jesus' own blood. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. Not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, self died. I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved us and preserves us, shelters us and equips us, and he keeps us for eternity. We live now by faith in him. That's how we are preserved. That's how Jonah was preserved. He was preserved by the work that Christ would do. Go with me. Come with me back to Jonah 1.17. There in one seventeen it says, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that fish, he was protected. He was sheltered. And that fish, it says, swallowed him up in the first part of that passage. It swallowed him up to protect him, to shelter him, and preserve him. How are we protected and preserved today? I'm not swallowed up by a fish. I wish my sins could be that easily dealt with. But instead of being swallowed up by a fish, my sins were swallowed up by Christ. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath to swallow up what we deserved. That's how we're preserved. That's how we're prepared for ministry. That's how we're preserved eternally. Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, swallowed up. He's greater than the fish. He swallowed up sinners. Now we are in Christ and we are protected. He drank up God's wrath against our disobedience to God's law. He drank up God's wrath against our religious pride. He drank up God's wrath against our perversion, our hatred, our hurtful words, our lust for power, our lust for money, our lust for independence, autonomy. Jesus is our life preserver. For him to save us, though, he had to die and be consumed by God's wrath for us so that we could be preserved in him forever, set free from our sins by his righteousness. I want to read to you what a dear brother wrote in the lyrics of one song that he composed about how Christ swallowed up what we deserved at the cross. This is written by Shai Lin. In three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. We can see at the cross how you feel about sin. Christ was bruised for the goody two-shoes who doesn't think she needs the good news. He was treated as an atheist, hit with licks for religious hypocrites, treated as a racist. Jesus was penalized like he had sinned inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write a billion years and can't name all the sins laid on the lamb slain. But know this, the main thing the cross demonstrated, the glory and the holiness of God vindicated. We couldn't name all the things that Christ swallowed up for us to preserve us and to satisfy God's righteous indignation against our sin. But it's through Jesus that we receive the mercy of God now as Christians. And it's through Jesus we should be motivated and prepared for ministry. We are to look to Him as our protection. We are to look to Him as our preserver. So we would go forth 
victorious, having been set free from the death that we deserved by his sacrifice. So we can do the work of ministry he calls us to go into the world to do. And like Jonah, we don't want to be swallowed up because of our sin, because Christ swallowed our sin for us so he could set us free to live for him. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ is our preserver today. We are kept and sheltered by him so we can do what he's called us to do. We're called to be his spokesman. And I want to do it willfully. I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to be trying to do God's will my own way. I want to be submitted to what God's will has revealed us to do and equipped us to do through Christ. God did a miracle in Jonah's life to point sinners to this truth. He sent a great fish to swallow Jonah and shelter him temporarily. And God sent Jesus to swallow our sin instead of letting sin swallow us eternally. We need to remember that this morning. We need to pray that the message of Jonah will cause us to stop and examine ourselves. Are we walking in light of our great shelter? Are we walking in light of our great preserver? Are we living a life that would be obedient to him and willfully serving him? Are we running from God's will? Are we ignoring God's call? Will God have to send us a fish experience to open our eyes and bring us back into his will? It doesn't have to be that way. God has provided for us in Scripture a way of escape. Christ is our strength. Let's pray. Father, today we come to you needing to be confronted and stopped to think about how often we don't trust in our preserver. Instead, we trust in our, in our desires rather than your revelation. And so, Father, we pray that you would, at this time, shelter us from that. You would protect us from that. And that you would preserve us so that we would be faithful to do your will in the world around us. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we study through Jonah. And Lord, I pray that you would be praised as we walk out the truths we learn about Jonah. We thank you for this day and we pray that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.